millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What were the origins of the JFC? The epicenter of the JFC was the housing market. It really started in the US, but there were similar housing bubbles that were forming in other countries like Spain, UK, um, and also Ireland. Basically what was happening was that people were borrowing more than they could afford. Uh, banks were giving out loans very easily, very easy access to credit, and often cheap access to credit as well. And that meant people overborrowed. The housing market kept going up. So as the banks were throwing money onto uh, into people and onto the housing market, the housing prices kept going up and up and up. So from the bank's perspective, if borrowers default, they'd be left with a very valuable house. So where's the risk? The problem started when not only did people start defaulting on their loans, but the housing prices fell. So a lot of people had debt that was actually higher than the value of the home that they actually owned. Today we're talking about the GFC, what is it, how did it happen, will it happen again, and we're joined by Jodie Fitzgerald from Morningstar Investment Management. Welcome Hi. back. Thank Welcome, Jody. Love coming back. Yeah. So Jody's our resident like guru in all yeah. things money, money markets, equities. Can you tell my husband I'm a guru? Yes. <laughs> Doesn't he think you are? No. no. So we're going to take you for a walk down the GFC garden path and hopefully try and uh, explain it to you just so you can understand because it was 10 years ago now mm. that it really happened. Some of our listeners may have been single f- digits. So let's have a chat about the GFC. Will it happen again? And uh, we'll try and ex- just explain it in everyday language because it is something that we hear about. You get the odd media cycle, GFC 2 and blah, yep. blah, blah. So we've got in Jody to explain everything and we'll, uh, we'll get into it. Yeah. Let's unpack this. So, so basically, if you don't like podcasts and you like watching movies, you can watch The Big Short. Yeah. I mean, that's a really kind of light, fun way to understand how the GFC happened. Mm-hmm. And I guess I wanted to just start with Jody. Like, building up to it, you mentioned the origins of the GST, <laughs> the origins of the GFC, and it was kind of this perfect storm. Yes. There was irresponsible lending. There were strippers who were paid cash who were um, low-income earners in the States who – and I'm only using the word strippers because in the movie I watched – because yep. I do research for these podcasts, John. You do. I yeah, watched the movie last night. credit to you. Thanks. <laughs> there were people with low-income jobs yep. getting paid cash and they called them ninja loans, no income, no job, yep. getting mortgages. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And what would happen is there was a housing boom in the States. Houses were – doubling you know Mm. within two years and people just borrowing the equity and it was this house of cards starting to build so for those that have watched the big short or are about to watch it because of what you've just said 
Jody, how how much GST have they added to Jeez. that <laughs> to that story? Uh, uh, po- a poetic license. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Look, there's always poetic license in these, so I can't verify or deny whether or not there was a stripper with five houses and yeah. a condo. Possibly was, I don't yeah. know, but it, they were just trying to overemphasize, I guess, what was occurring. Mm. But if you think about it, if you you know, it, it, as I said, there was a housing bubble. Uh, and Which people, is generally a, a localised... It is definitely generally mm. localised. So realistically, a housing bubble that bursts should really only impact those people who owned the home, the bank that lent the money to them, mm. and the local economy in which they operate in. However, this housing bubble brought the global banking system to its knees. Yeah. And the reason why that occurred was that there were a lot of very complex financial products and derivatives that were built off the US mortgage market. Um, And we'll unpack some of those terms today. And you've probably heard them and gone, I have no idea what that is. So Mm. hopefully we can sort of unpack some of those. Right. So essentially you're saying that uh, the GFC was caused by the money that people made from the housing bubble or the boom and took that money into other um, asset class and it, it all blew up. Well, in some respects, it was, it, to put it really simply, it was creating something from nothing. Yeah. Right. So, and, and that was, that was part, part of the issue. So maybe if we, maybe one way to actually sort of delve into this is to try to, um, you know, do you know where a mortgage comes from? Mm. Because I feel like I'm asking you where do babies come from. You got that look on your face, Glenn. Like, where yeah. does a baby come from? <laughs> because in a, it, before it's a good we answer, before we answer that question, in Australia, if if you don't default on your mortgage, reg, the the price of the the asset that you've got is is in some cases irrelevant. Like if you can continue to hold the the property by repaying the interest, yep. it doesn't matter the, what the, the value is. The bank is. will leave you alone. Yeah. Why they? The so, problem is people couldn't pay their loans. Yeah, yeah so. but as well, just in the simmering up to the actual event in 2008, in the States, and we will get into this, um, the terminology subprime, but there were mortgages that had introductory deals yes. and variable mm-hmm. rates. So in 2005, someone may have got a mortgage. In 2008, where it came off the introductory rate, mm-hmm. this person might have might have had four or five mortgages with the interest rate, you know, going up 3%, 4% overnight. Mm. Yeah. So it just was compounding. There was yeah, so many elements that were compounding. Yeah. So and, – and, and in all of this, like you say, well, yeah, irresponsible lending, all those sort of things. But the obviously the, the consumer, the, um, the, the person doing all this has to take the responsibility, don't they? Like they've, yeah. they've put their hand up and said, yeah, loan me money. I, I think I can do some good, good things with this. Yeah. yeah, yeah, don't they? So yeah, let's it's like someone on credit card debt, right? Do you blame the bank or do you blame the person who keeps spending? Yeah, yeah. So I guess I would want to just add before we unpack what a mortgage is yeah. in basic terms, it was very unique to the United States because the mortgage market, the mortgage world, is structured differently. Mm. In the states, if you don't pay your mortgage, you can just throw them the keys, you the can. bank, walk and away. walk away. Not now, though, can you? They've changed all that because of that. Yeah. But it, it's a big thing. It's very different mm. to Australia, right, mm. where, you know, it's you can't just walk away. You've got mm. to battle through it. Yeah. Um, but over there, when you got to the point where your home loan was worth more than your house, yeah. well, here's the keys. Yeah. Yeah. Off walk away. I'll, it's, it's just so different. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So how does a mortgage work conceptually? Yeah. So, so we all know what a mortgage is, right? I want to buy a house. I go to the bank. I borrow the money. I agree to pay them interest and principal over time. 
And if I don't pay, it's called a default and they've got the right here in Australia anyway to come and take the house. Mm. But what's really important to understand really to sort of get to the heart of why investment banks started creating these financial products is where does the money come from? So when a bank lends you money to buy a house, where does that come from? So a bank has access to capital or assets, right? So one of those is the savings that you and I put into the bank or companies put into the bank. However, in a lot of countries like Australia, US, etc., people tend to borrow more than they save. So the pool of savings that the banks have gathered usually isn't enough. So another source of funding might be the equity that they've raised in the stock market by selling their shares. Mm -hmm. um, another form is what we call the wholesale funding market. So the banks will actually take out a loan. So, for example, uh, here in Australia, let's just pick a random bank, Westpac. Westpac will issue a bond into the market. It'll be a five-year bond, for example, where they agree to pay interest over the five years and eventually the principal back at the end of the five years. The reason why they do that is they go into the market and they sell those bonds to superannuation firms, to asset managers, knowing that the cost of them borrowing that money is going to be less than the money they can make by then lending it out to their mm. clients. So that's another source. In the States though, um, and it does happen everywhere, but it was particularly huge over there, there's another form of funding called securitization. And this is where the first lot of the terms start to come in, which is the idea of mortgage-backed securities. And what that actually is, is basically the bank will take the mortgages. So these mortgages are, you know, an illiquid asset just sitting on their balance sheet. They'll package thousands, thousands of them up into a pool and sell shares of that pool to investors. So that way, it's why it's called securitization. You've taken an illiquid asset mm. and turned it into, you know, something that people can buy shares in. Yeah. So the security of that share is all of those mortgages. All of those mortgages. Mm. And on paper those people might be paying 5% return mm. Mm. or 5% interest. So that product actually makes money. If you buy shares in it, you should be able to pull a dividend yep. or profit out of that pool of mortgages. Equal yeah. to the interest payments that are being made through. So yeah. so that was a significant source of, um, of, of capital to the banks to then keep going out and keep lending. Um, so mortgage-backed securities is basically when the bank on-sells that mortgage to another party, mm. effectively. And how common is that in Australia? It does happen here. Yeah. Uh, it's not uh, as big of a source of funding as yeah. it was in the States um, um, at, at the time. Because you think about it, John, like a bond, for example, a corporate or a government bond. So a corporate bond is like the bank saying, uh, we, you can buy this $10,000 bond for 10 years and we'll pay you 4%. I'm making up a number. Yep. Yep. Australian Treasury bond, you can buy a $10,000 bond, we'll pay you X amount for 10 years. Yep. That's a defensive asset. Mm. I guess the next, if you know, cash or gold is the most defensive, I'm just making something up here, tell me if I'm wrong, Jody. <laughs> then we've got a layer of bonds, we're getting more risky. Yep. The next layer is, as a defensive asset, would be a mortgage because there is a chance that somebody might not be able to pay their mortgage, mm -hmm. which, and again, as we go up the risk curve, 
the returns should get higher. Should. Yep. Finance yep. 101, risk yep. and reward. The higher so, the risk, the bigger the reward. So an mm-hmm. everyday government bond from Australia, yep. pretty solid. If it's a Greek bond, maybe not. <laughs> the next thing up um, might be a corporate bond, yep. so a Westpac or CBA corporate bond. Then the next one would be mortgages, yep. possibly. Yep. And you can actually buy, there are companies yeah. that you can buy uh, a mortgage fund. Yep. So, and they're good, good returns, but there is risk. Yeah, and you know, realistically, there's no issue with the concept of mortgage-backed securities, right, um, at all. Because when you think about it, you've got this pool of uh, you know thousands of mortgages. If one of them defaults, so what? Yeah, it doesn't affect the whole security. Doesn't ex- does it? Doesn't yeah. affect the whole pool. But this is where things started to come unraveled, mm. right? <laughs> we need the sound effects. <laughs> dun 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 dun. Yeah. Um, so, in an ideal world. Under normal circumstances, the only people who should be able to get a loan to buy a house, so I want to go and you know, lend, uh, borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy a house, is people who have jobs, people who have good credit history, yeah. people who you know are going to pay that back. Mm. Under those circumstances, the mortgage-backed securities are not bad investments, right? You get paid a slightly higher interest rate because obviously the creditworthiness of an individual is a lot less than the creditworthiness of a government. Mm. Um, but, you know, you should reasonably expect the diversification of that pool, you will get your money back over time. But that all changed in 2000s. And the reason for that is that... Greed. Well, (laughs) (laughs) sure. (laughs) (laughs) So the reason why it changed is at the time, so a few years prior, there was this thing called the tech wreck. Um, That's a whole other topic. But basically what happened was that... um, to support the economy and the markets, uh, central banks started cutting interest rates. So the amount of money that you could actually earn investing in a government bond was pretty low. And there was this term at the time called a hunt for yield. So people basically wanted better returns. So if I go and buy a government bond, I'm really not going to get a lot. No. So, But if I buy this mortgage-backed security, it's paying a higher interest rate. And still safe, and quite unquote. safe, mm. right? So the big investment firms, you know, the pension funds, your superannuation fund, mm. they were all hunting for yield at the time and looking for investments that paid a higher rate of interest than what they could have earned on a government bond. Yeah. So there was a huge demand for these things. And at the same time, and this is where um, you know you would have heard about the role that credit uh, rating agencies played in, in the GFC. The ratings agencies, what they do is they go and they have a look at what makes up that 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 bond or that debt, and give it a credit rating. So how likely is this person going to repay? They were given AAA credit ratings. So what you had. Which is the highest, right? Mm. So what you had is you had a bond that had the same credit rating as the government, paid a higher rate of interest than the government, and the collateral that was backing that bond was the housing market that just kept going up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, seriously, can't get any better, right? Mm. So I want more of that. I'll take two. I'll take four, five, six. Mm. And then this is where it all got very sticky and... And the word subprime that you mentioned a second ago starts yeah. to come into play. So if you're a subprime lender, yep. that means, John, yourself and Amy, mm. you want a mortgage, mm. but you've been crap with your money. You've had defaults on phone bills. You've had defaults on freaking your energy bill. You're not a good credit risk for a bank. Yep. So the traditional banks that you see, you know, the top four, for example, will say, look, you're too risky for us to lend money to. Subprime... So Prime, Big Four, 
yep. sub under the next layer of lenders exactly yep. um, would go, you know what, John, we're going to take a risk on you and Amy. Yeah, we can see something. In we here. can see, we, you know, you've got potential here. <laughs> You're a good kid. We're going yeah. to charge a 10% interest yeah, though. We're going to put some tax on it. But yeah. in, a, in, you know, in ordinary kind of world, that's okay for free market to charge John higher interest because mm. he's a higher risk. risk. Yeah. So, so in Australia, it's second tier lending. Basically. Basically, yeah. yeah. So the problem was these products that were made had a pool of mortgages that had triple A rating. Mm-hmm. but were full of dodgy John and Amy's mm. yeah. who were really bad with their money mm. and were very high risk. Yeah, well, it's sort of, um, you know, so when you think about it, if you've got the investors wanting more of these mortgage-backed securities, the only way the investment banks could create more mortgage-backed securities was to have more mortgages. Yeah. Yes. So what happened was lending practices really were loosened, right? So people who couldn't afford it, didn't have a job, Never had a job in their life. As you said, no credit, no... Uh, Put their dog's name on the application. <laughs> yeah, stuff like that, right? Yeah. Mm. Off you go, you can have a loan. And, you know, we, we had a similar situation here in Australia. I don't know, you know, yeah. for, for anyone who was old enough, you would have remembered at the time, on TV, constantly during prime time, were firms advertising low-doc home loans. Yeah, yeah. that's right. It's basically 100% lending with, um, with an accountant's declaration and away you go, right? Yeah, it's like yeah. I don't have to prove to you I even have a job and you will yeah. give me, yeah, 100% of the money I need to buy that house. Mm-hmm. You know, people who just couldn't afford it. So the interesting thing is the whole, in its own right, like if we created a bond that we said was AAA rated mm-hmm. and it was full of dodgy credit risk, okay, in its own right, if that failed, it still wouldn't cause the GFC. So the next layer in this freaking rainbow cake Mm. of um, (laughs) of crap, crap storm, was entered, uh, would we say the CDOs, the the collateral... Collateralized debt operations. Yeah, that's the ones. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Big stuff now. No? Yeah, so, so yeah, big words. Because now. realistically, in its own right, creating a heap of dodgy products, if the products fell over, shouldn't cause the global financial crisis. No. But no. it's what happened next. It is what happened next, mm. yeah. So, so here's our chain we know where a mortgage comes from, we know how the banks get the money for it. All right. And part of them getting the money is the securitization. They were earning a lot of money selling these mortgage backed securities. So they created more by lending out to people who couldn't afford it. Mm. That said, though, the subprime market in the US wasn't actually as large as you think. It was only probably about 10% of mortgages written. Right. Is that right? Exactly. Mm. So it in itself wasn't necessarily you know, a, mm. a, a huge part of the issue. But the problem was is that if you then start lending money to people who can't afford to make the payments – the housing price, which is fine if the housing market's going up. Yeah. You just take the house. I've got a, an asset that's worth a lot. I'll just sell it and I'll get my money back. Yeah. The problem is when these people couldn't start paying, houses then started coming on the market and that housing bubble collapsed. Um, that became a huge problem. The economy fell into a recession. People couldn't make their repayments and away we go. So, so sorry, Joe, just to clarify for, for listeners, did uh, for them to, for so many to be able to s- stop um, being able to, repay their debt or their, their interest, 
did a whole heap of people lose their jobs or yes. did interest rates rise? What what created that? People losing jobs. Uh, well, there was a couple of things, right? So within the subprime, so if we just take that small smallish portion of, of the mortgage market, a lot of times, so the mortgage brokers were paid based on the number of deals they closed, mm. not on the quality of those mortgages. Yeah. So they didn't care if they lent the money to, you know, the dog next door, basically. Mm. Um, and to entice people to overextend... They often had introductory interest rates that were like quite I talked about before. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then those interest rates would balloon after a year or two. Mm. And people, you know, being naive, it's all right. I've got a couple of years to sort it out. Get to the point they can't. The balloon payments come through. They can't make the payments, mm. so they default. When they default, at the same time, the housing market started to slow, so there was less demand. But when you've got less demand and all of a sudden supply starts coming back onto the market because mm. the banks are trying to sell those houses yeah. to recoup the mortgages, um, then you start to see housing price collapse. As housing prices then start to collapse, so it, you, know, you and I who have borrowed money to buy a house that we can afford, we've actually bought a house in the middle of a housing bubble though. So we've theoretically overpaid for our house. And then I turn around and go, well, the housing prices have just collapsed. Even though I can continue to afford to pay for this mortgage, mm. my debt's worth more than the house. Mm. Thanks, bank. Here's the keys. Yeah. And I was going to say, go. when I can throw my keys back in and, and take no fall for it, yep. then Off I go. I'll, that's what I'll do and I'll start fresh again. Yeah. Mm. So the housing market started to unravel that, you know, we started to see the economy go into a recession and so forth. But as I said, so the subprime, the mortgage-backed securities, the subprime made up a portion of them. They were low quality. What then happened was all the things that came over and above mortgage-backed securities. And the first one that you mentioned were CDOs or collateralized debt obligations. So basically, as the investment banks were creating these uh, mortgage-backed securities, they were then selling them off. And sometimes they couldn't sell them all off. What they would then do was create a new product because when you can't, you know, you put lipstick on a pig or mm. glitter on a turd, as we say, and you turn it into something new and you sell it. It's still a pig. It's still a pig. Um, so what they would then do is that they would take those mortgages and other debt products, that, uh, and the reason why it's called collateralised debt, it's any product where the debt is backed by an asset underneath. So it could be a car loan, it could be credit cards, etc. So it was a hodgepodge of different debt instruments mm. that were packaged up together and then sold out to the market as well. Um, and these collateralised debt obligations had varying levels of, of quality. We then get even further into it, right, where derivatives, and we can come back to explain what a derivative is, a derivative called a collateralised debt swap was created. The best way to think about that is that it's insurance, okay? So some people out there went, oh, this, I don't know, this looks a bit risky. Don't worry, says the bank, we'll sell you insurance so that if it does default, we will take it back on. But we, you've got to pay us a premium like, yeah. like you do for any insurance yeah. for that. Now, in the big short, there was a lot of people who were smart enough to work that out and took out those positions. It cost them a lot of money until the market fell over. Yeah, because um, they'll pay an example in the, in the movie, which is a really good example. Imagine rocking up to your house uninsured mm. on fire calling your home insurance and saying, I'd like some home insurance, please. Yeah. Hmm. It was going to collapse. So there were people knowing that this yeah. was a bubble and they would walk up to, you know, go Goldman Sachs or Deutsche and um, is it Deutsche or Deutsche Bank? Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank. Um, and say, hey, your triple A backed securities, 
we want to bet you. Mm. We want to ensure that these will never fail. We'll pay you a premium. Oh, we want to put a, a swap on betting you, for one of a better word, mm. that this security will fail. Yeah. And they're thinking, yeah, right. So yeah. we'll we'll guarantee that if it does fail to pay you a big lump sum, for example, mm. but you need to pay us a premium along the way. Now, these markets were unregulated and what we refer to as over-the-counter markets. So you don't go to a stock exchange or a, or a, a listed market where the prices are obvious to actually sort of trade in them. Yeah. So, so these things became really, really big. So while the mortgage market was a certain size, trillions of dollars was written over the top of that single asset. Mm. Because they were paying on the triple A type securities, which couldn't fail, mm. quote unquote, sometimes up to 200 to one. Mm. On the back of them all wanting better returns than what they were currently getting. Yep. Yep. Agreed. Mm. Well, it, it's... Well, a bit of, also a bit of naivety probably as mm. well, mm. in the sense that the bet that, you know, the banks at the time were developing these new instruments, selling them into the market. They didn't have the capital backing to prevent a collapse if these instruments went wrong. So the creation of these instruments ran ahead of the regulation, ran ahead of the bank's skill set to be able to manage the risks. Mm. Um, And quite frankly, the the web that was created was really unknown until it started to unravel. Um, So... Mm. You know, yes, there's some greed in there, but I think there was just some naivety around, yeah. you know, f- financial innovations. I'm using quotation marks yeah. that your listeners can't see, but yeah. mm. um, you know, that sort of the financial innovation can run ahead of of. It, of, it was just crazy because yeah. then they made what they called the synthetic CDOs, which <laughs> they may have had three different CDOs and packed them up into one CDO. Yeah. Mm. So there was multi layers, mm. and then on the top of that people having over-the-counter handshake agreements with quote-unquote investment banks Mm. to say, hey, we want to put a a swap on this to say that if they do fail, you know, we want the money. Yeah. And they go all day long because it's Mm. not going to fail. It's safe as houses. Mm. And then... Literally. So in terms of spreading to the globe, you mentioned that the investment banks creating these things like Mm. Lehman Brothers, they would have to borrow money from other banks around the world. Yeah, they're famous brothers now, aren't they? Yeah. Very famous. I was saying earlier to Glenn, I, I still remember the day Lehman's collapsed and he went on to, you know, because never, ever assume a banker won't try to pass up making a buck when they can. Mm. If you went on to eBay the day Lehman's collapsed, you could actually buy stuff from the office. Really? Like the staff were putting on coffee cups, Lehman passes, yeah. hats, ca- anything with the name Lehman's on it, knowing yeah. that it would become a relic. Um, it was it was sadly amusing at the time. Yeah. But um, so basically, derivative is something that derives value from something else. Hence the term derivative. De- derivative. So let's just say, for example, we're going to put this in terms of you know the rugby world cups on. Let's just say um, that you think you know who's going to win the rugby world cup. You go to your bookie, and because you're a high roller, you know you put a thousand bucks on. And the bookie says, I'll take that. And if they win, I'll pay you two grand. If they lose, I get to keep $1,000. The agreement you've got in place with the bookie is like a derivative. So your financial outcome is dependent 
on a completely different event. So whether or not you walk away with 2,000 or you lose 1,000 depends on the outcome of the World Cup, yeah. right? So now imagine the whole world putting money on the same game. Yeah. Going back to the big short, there's a great scene in that that tries to explain what a synthetic CDO is with Selena Gomez. Yeah, at the poker table. At the blackjack table, table, yeah. So it goes like this, right? So let's just assume that you've got a gambler who's at the blackjack table who's on a winning streak. There's no more seats at the table. So people can't get in and they can't get in on the action, but they're watching it play out. And and people just assume, you know, she just keeps winning. Therefore, she will keep winning. And away you go. So people, a crowd starts gathering because this is awesome to watch. Mm. People two or three back who can't get into the table and make a bet just go, well, we'll just bet amongst ourselves. (laughs) I bet you that she will win the next hand. Mm. I'll take that bet. Then people four, five, six rows back start betting on the people who are betting (laughs) on the bet. That is what was happening. So before you knew it, trillions and trillions of dollars was riding on a bet, which was that people who borrowed too much to buy houses Mm. that were overinflated in prices, that they'd be able to make their repayments. So that's your blackjack table. Mm. Um, And everybody, whether you're right sitting at the table or whether because you couldn't get a seat at the table, you decided to start betting amongst yourselves. Yes, they wanted to get skin in the game somewhere. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So all these different um, investment banks around the world, mm. they were making their own products. It wasn't yeah. people. So they were making products to go to market. Yep. And the crazy thing was... Without regulation. Without regulation. Yeah. And two, when they would sell the products on market, would take a spread. So it could be a 5%. Mm-hmm. So if someone put in, oh, yeah, we'll take a million dollars. Yeah of that, they might get 2 to 5%. So I liken this to sport where the scientists come come up with a, a performance-enhancing drug that says, yeah, we're going to test this to make the athlete stronger or faster or whatever, but the regulators or the governing body hasn't caught up to the science. Yes. Is that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So what what's go, what was going on with the regulators in the States at the time? Well, you know, okay, so here, here's, the, here's the difficult part of it, right? Because these subprime and these derivatives that were being created, they were new, okay? And then you had the ratings agencies giving them high ratings. And in defence of the ratings agencies, again, because they were new, the only historical evidence they had on how do I rate a subprime mortgage was the historic value of the housing market and that people do repay their mortgages. Um, so the regulator wasn't absent. It just – this hadn't been seen before. Yeah. Okay, Banks were actually complying with their capital requirements, so they were holding the levels of capital that they actually needed to on their balance sheet – but it just wasn't enough. And, and, and since the global financial crisis, the amount of capital that banks now have to hold is, is extremely mm. large in comparison. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, the regulator wasn't absent. It was just new. And as, yeah. as you said, it's like the governing body just hasn't seen this drug before. Yeah, it hasn't caught up. Um, so, and it's only when it starts to become obvious and starts unravelling mm. that, that they catch up and put in, put in place regulations to, to fix it. So the... The listeners are saying, well, that's great in the States, but how does it relate to, to Australia? What what did Australia learn from the GFC? Well, how it relates to Australia is the way that it unravelled, right? So in the sense that it, it caused a global economic crisis um, because the banks were so interlinked together that the financial banks went to their knees. The governments actually had to step in. 
So in sort of like early um, 2007, you had some of the subprime lenders started to fail. And at the time, people were just calling it a credit crisis, right? Because it was quite localised. It was the people who had sort of overlent to bad, you know, bad, debt, bad um, uh, mortgage holders. However, what then started to happen was that it actually um, uh, moved on to the bigger banks. So Bear Stearns was the first one, effectively, where Bear Stearns ran a couple of hedge funds that were investing in this space that, that collapsed. And Bear Stearns was then uh, forced... Uh, you know, a forced fire sale to J.P. Morgan Chase at the time. Lehman's was the next to go. So that was on the 15th of September 2008 where – so the thing with that was that they were so involved in mortgage origination, so not only involved in creating it and on selling it, but they held a lot of it on their own balance sheets. So when – and nobody really understood that, right? So when they – when the mortgage market started to collapse, all of a sudden the value of them as a business has completely collapsed mm. as well. Yeah, their share price went to zero. Now, because they're a big global bank, right, if a little local regional bank fails, it's felt in that little community. But we're talking about a big global bank yeah. who is doing business around the world. And this is what we refer to as counterparty risk is that if I'm going to do business with you, I want to make sure you're going to be here tomorrow yeah. to fulfill your end of the bargain. So this then started to extend beyond mortgages to any other product or dealing the bank had around the world. Mm. Um, so the ramifications, and, and it was only once it started unravelling up, people didn't know where the risks were. So the governments actually stepped in and started going in and sending in the government accountants to pick through the balance sheets of all these banks and then confirming that bank's okay or this bank's not, it needs to raise more capital. And right. when, um, when it all went down, Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister in yeah. Australia... Um, and I heard, you know, behind the scenes, there was one big bank in Australia, uh, we'll call it top six bank, and they were four days off because there, there was a run on the banks. People were freaking out yep. and wanted to pull the cash out. So one of these big banks, I heard a rumour it was a Suncorp. I don't know if it was true or not. It's a rumour, whatever. <laughs> Um, I heard it's a legal disclaimer it's got, in. It's gospel. You heard it in. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. It was just. It's what I heard. It's a rumor. There you go. A rumor, um, allegedly, that they were four days from illiquidity, almost. Mm. And that's when the government stepped in and say, "We'll guarantee bank deposits up to two hundred fifty thousand dollars, just to stop the run on the banks." Yeah. yeah. I mean, people got nervous and you saw it, you know, if you Google it, you'll see um, pictures of people lining up at ATMs in the States, yeah. terrified if the bank goes down, because that's the problem, right? That's Where's the counterparty risk. Yeah. I'm a saver. Well, I'm not mm. a saver. I'd love to be a saver. <laughs> um, I'm, a, I'm a saver who has all of my life savings in that bank. Yeah. If that bank goes belly up, mm. my savings are gone. That is how it unraveled. That's how we started to to see sort of an economic crisis form yeah. out of a financial crisis. Mm. So the lesson in Australia and, and everywhere was the regulation was yeah. around people really didn't have an eye on debt and the role it was playing in growing the economy. Yeah. Hey, Laura. Hey, Glenn. When you and Nathan, like, get married start a family and, mm -hmm. and be all cute and want to buy a house and get a mortgage, where are you going to get your mortgage? 
I'm going to go to a mortgage broker. Well, no, you're going to go to sortyourmoneyout.com <laughs> and then click get help. Yes. And I'm going to ask you a couple little questions and introduce you to a mortgage broker that is best suited for you. So basically a mortgage broker, they will look at your situation and recommend the most appropriate loan for your circumstances. Indeed. I think that sounds really good. So what's the website again? It's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Perfect. It's as simple as that. That is very simple. And remember, Laura, it's not a house. It's a home. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) So the big question is, could it happen again? And, you know, my simplistic answer is probably no, because those instruments the debt in the state, like just not there anymore. Companies are a lot healthier. There's a lot more capital, but that's why I've got you here, Jody. Never say never. Right? Okay. Um, you know, housing bubbles and banking crises do actually go hand in hand, but, but things have changed. So as I said, um, you know, what, what was happening, particularly in the countries that were uh, significantly impacted, so the US, Ireland, you know, UK, et cetera, households really did cut the level of debt that they had. Um, we've also got better regulation over the banks. The banks are required to actually hold a lot more capital. Yeah. The banks actually retreated from the way they did a lot of business. So, you know, banks like Deutsche Bank, where uh, the, the, so not just Deutsche Bank, but the German banks in, in general, they were really global banks, right? Nearly two-thirds of their business was offshore. That's more like a third these days. Yeah. So people started, and, and the domestic banks in Australia started moving out of Asia and started unwinding, you know, uh, things that weren't necessarily, you know, tr- true to true to label in terms of what they were doing. That said, though, so while households have done a pretty good job at reducing their debt, governments haven't. No. Okay, so um, before the GFC, uh, I almost said GST. <laughs> You've got it in my brain I know, now. <laughs> I was saying that at the start a million times. Um, was, you know, two, two times GDP. So global debt was you know, two times global GDP. It's now more than three times. Yeah. So debt's actually gone up. And where that debt's gone up is firstly governments. So because we've gone into recession, the government's had to supply a lot of support to the economy and to the banking system. Um, they've had to borrow. They've got less tax receipts because people, particularly in the States, didn't have jobs. So less revenue coming in, more, re- more money going out. They've had to borrow. So their debt's gone up. Same time, corporate debt's actually gone through the roof few reasons for that. Firstly, as I said, the banks started to pull back from aspects uh, and particularly given that they've got to hold more capital. So they actually don't lend to certain parts of the market anymore. So those parts of the market are now going to the bond market to get access to debt. At the same time, because the central banks around the world have cut interest rates so low, it's actually pretty cheap for a corporate to go out and issue debt at the moment. So they've kind of gone into the market with their ears pinned back and got a whole bunch of cheap debt. So... It's, it's Could it happen again? Not the same. Yeah. But debt's still a problem in the world. And one of, one of the debts in the States that really bothers me, and I don't really have an answer to what it means, but I've been thinking about it for a little while, is actually student loans. Yeah. Right? So US student debt is over $1.4 trillion. Wow. Student loans cannot be defaulted on. So you can't be bankrupted. From your student loan, John. Right. So when, when you're talking student loans, primarily you're talking university yep. loans. Yep. Yeah. I thought they had to pay for it up front over there. No. no. So what they do in the States, so 
the price for the tuition is basically the same price as here, yeah. okay? However, you can borrow for your living expenses. You can borrow for your accommodation. Right. So someone may have got a, a an education degree in the States and have a 150K student loan. Yeah. But because they haven't worked for the years at uni, yeah. uh, it's just a debacle. So it's not necessarily tuition, it's living. Yes. Mm. But because it is such a private sector, these universities, they're running a freaking business. Yeah. Mm. And they know that they can, you know, have the mm. prestige the and whatnot loans, yeah. and, and charge whatever. But the yeah. problem is with the student loans, they basically can't be bankrupted. Mm. And they're tying the... So when we talk about mortgages, banks will give a mortgage if there's security behind it, like yeah. the value of the house. Yep. They're tying the value to you as a person to generate yeah, income. You're yes. the asset. Yeah. You're the asset. Exactly. So it is horrendous, yeah. Yeah, so if people can't pay those loans, then you know they, they'll stop spending because they have to pay the loans and that'll have an economic impact. Mm. Also, you know, a significant portion of these student loans are actually held on the balance sheet of the US government. So like a big portion of their balance sheet of these loans. So what happens if you know, these people aren't, aren't paying back. So the next crisis won't look like the last crisis. That, mm. that I know for certain. Because um, we've learnt from it. We have. And, mm. and, and, you know, as I said, the regulators are there and uh, there's more capital, et cetera. But, but debt's still a problem. And, you know, how that becomes the next situation that plays out, I'm unsure. I think student loans will pay a part. I think the fact that corporates have gone into the market with their ears pinned back and borrowed a lot, theoretically that won't be as systemic because it'll only be whoever owns those corporate bonds. Yeah, right? it's very localised. It's not as systemic. But unless those companies have used that money for productive means, so in other words, used it to improve their ability to generate cash flow, yeah. you know, it's going to be a problem as well. So the government's debt, you were saying before, has increased dramatically. Mm. Their asset book would have would have also increased given the last four or five years of property prices in Sydney and Melbourne. Would that be a fair... The government? Yeah. N- not unless they're holding property on their balance sheet, which they wouldn't... They're not? No, well, they'd have some... Not the Australian government. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. No. Yeah, okay. Hey, we might leave it there, but I just want to thank Jody for coming in and trying to unpack, and hopefully you've learned one or two things mm-hmm. about you know how the GFC began, what mm-hmm. led up to it. Uh, but like anything, we can't control everything in the world, so we just need to focus on what you can control. Yeah. You can control keeping out of consumer debt. You can control having an emergency fund. So if the worst case did happen, you've got three months of expenses, you can control having your own income insurances. So if you break your freaking neck and can't work for two years, mm. the money doesn't stop. You can control not to borrow more than what you can afford. There's so much that we can control in our own lives and not use excuses of why we can't get ahead or I don't want to do this because of that or this or that. You've just got to take action take ownership, take control of your own financial life. And if the worst does happen, yeah, it sucks, but you're going to have the best chance of getting through it without having to sell all your crap. Yep, good point. So thank you very much, Jody, and we'll have you on again soon. Awesome. Bye. 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 
If you are after personal financial advice, this podcast is not for you. But if you do want somebody to talk to, jump onto sortyourmoneyout.com and click on get help and I'll be able to put you in touch with an advisor or a mortgage broker who can actually sit down with you or have a Skype or a Zoom meeting and really work out what you need based on your own personal circumstances. My Millennial Money supports A21. A21 is a non-profit organization that exists to abolish slavery everywhere. These guys rescue real people from human trafficking across the world. If you want to learn more about how you can contribute to the fight against human trafficking, check out a21.org forward slash au. Remember, we hang out on Insta at My Millennial Money. If you're a regular listener, you're welcome to join our Facebook group. If you want more money hacks, be sure to subscribe to My Millennial Money Express. It's short money hacks anywhere, anytime, right into your ears. So this podcast, you know, we like to get to the real issues, right? The real topics. Cutting edge. Cutting edge. Jody, what's your favorite Dyson product? Dyson. And I'm going to ask you as well, Jody. Okay. Oh, you wouldn't know. I, freaking, I'll ask Amy. Get Amy on the phone. <laughs> you know, I've got a bit of an issue with Dyson at the moment. Oh. So have I. Right? So, so have I. I've Jeez, got, Dyson aren't I've, going to be our major sponsor on the podcast. I've got Not two yet. Dyson vacuum cleaners, right? I've got the old, you know, drag around with a cord annoying. And I bought myself one of those cordless fabulous. I'm always like, oh, ah, yes. love Yes, it. I've love got it. one at the studio. Love it. Yeah. Uh, you know, 12 months later, you get like, Three minutes of and then it automatically charge. stops and just doesn't work. Yeah, well, the battery, the yeah, battery's really. shit. You know, yeah. it's like remember when you first started buying iPhones and the battery would yeah. last half a day. It's the same thing. Wow. Yeah. So now, so I've got this lovely cordless thing that I can use for thirty seconds, and then I got to get out the one with the cord yeah, the yeah. around the house. And I bought a second battery, a replacement battery for my Dyson hand thing. Yeah. Uh, I haven't installed it yet. Yeah, but you know what? I, you know, maybe I'm a bit old school, but I feel it should last longer than 12 months. Absolutely. No? Mm. And they've stopped making the cord ones because uh, they claim it's so... Are they really? They've stopped making them because they're, <sighs> they're claiming that the cordless ones are uh, so powerful wow. and blah, 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 blah. I love my cordless ones. they're not cheap oh, either, are they? They're not cheap. Like, they're not cheap, no. So, so I do love my cordless one, but I'm disappointed. It's let me down. Yeah. So do you have any say on this topic, John? No, nah, no, not at all. Oh, so, I use a traditional vacuum cleaner that sucks things up and you empty it and get on with your life. Yeah, right. right. But, Old school. Yeah. So I like where technology's going, but what's with the bloody Dyson taps? With I've the, missed that. Really? Oh, have you seen it? This bloke's got too no, much time on his no, hands, Jody. No, 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 yeah, no. Were you, no. Were you and I were in the trenches working. No. Yeah. was checking okay. Dyson taps. At the Four Seasons Hotel yeah. down here on the harbour where I'm staying. Yeah. And I've seen them in other high-end places. Actually, it's funny. I've got to show that you. That must be the difference. Hey, yeah, no, yeah, no, no, no. You and I don't I've, I've, got to, I've got to read you this we're review. I, <laughs> I, I've, I've stopped reading reviews. I just skim. Um, this is so funny. I know what this is going to be too. Without no, 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 no. Um, anyway, this chick, she's like, she loves the show. 
Glennie's so hilariously unrelatable, but somehow it still works. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that wasn't what I was going to say. Cold hard reality check. <laughs> yeah. So I'm sorry. I'm just the guy trying to have a go. But no, shut up. So and taps or no, no. So they've got what these dice and taps, tap? and I'm going to you. They're autom- They're like a T shape, like a V. And they've got the automatic water, and then to the side they've got the dryer. No, I have in them. seen one yeah. of those. Now that you say it, I was at a conference recently. Yeah. It was at a hotel. Yeah, in the, the hotel. Yeah. yeah, it took me a little while to work, work it out. I must say, yeah. maybe I'm a And the sensor idiots, doesn't but... work. Yeah, well, but the thing is, it the, they've installed these Dyson taps after, so and the shape of the bowl it uh. just blew water back up. Right, like it wasn't a good experience. Yeah. One step further, when the dodgy Chinese replica companies make them, they're going to be even worse quality yeah. and places are going to put these dodgy things in. Mm. Mm. So this is a real problem, guys. Oh, big ticket items here. Big Festival problems. Big, big <laughs> yeah. problems. But yeah. um, I've got a Dyson hairdryer in my guest bathroom. That's <laughs> what do you need a hairdryer for? No, for my guest, my guest bathroom. <laughs> And that's a good thing. Yeah. I recommend Dyson hair dryers. Do you have a female stay over? Sometimes. <laughs> Late. Okay, bye. Uh, <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.